2: The proto-police forces that patrolled the streets of colonial America differed according to latitude. In the North, 17th century law enforcement arrived in the form of night watchmen in cities like New York and Boston. A ragtag group of volunteers and ex-criminals, they were handicapped by a tendency to drink or fall asleep on the job. While they tried to catch people gambling or engaging prostitutes, their equivalents in the South were there to reinforce racial division. Charleston established the first slave patrol in 1704. It was replicated across the Carolinas and beyond as a means for whites to stop slaves escaping and to reinforce the South's oppressive racial code. Modern American police forces are not like this, but for some activists, the disproportionate use of force against black Americans today still echoes this racist past. They had hoped that George Floyd's murder would bring change, But there are a few quick fixes when reforming law enforcement. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why is American criminal justice so resistant to reform? When Democrats took control of Congress and the presidency, it raised hopes that real change could happen in a system tarnished by racism and police brutality. But federal efforts to bring about police reform have stalled, thanks to the usual partisan discord. Even at a local level, where there are some examples of success, progressive district attorneys are hitting roadblocks. Meanwhile, the murder rate is up. So what should those seeking to change policing in America actually be arguing for? With me to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are things in New York?
3: I'm well. I had a thrilling moment this week because our producer John Shield sent around an article that happened to include a picture of some cowboys in chaps, and it became clear that John Fasman did not know the term for this. He referred to these this article of clothing is leather leggings, so it's one piece of Americana that I know, and John Fasman doesn't. Though, I have to say that any intellectual superiority bestowed by knowing the term "chaps" is pretty fleeting. So I'm back to where I started.
2: We have to celebrate these small victories, though. John, how about you?
0: Are, are you going to rush out and buy a pair of chaps now you know <laughs> what they're called? You know, I don't really see the utility, personally. Uh, a chaps in a Prius just doesn't quite work. <laughs> Beyond that, I'm in I'm in agony. Last night. For the first time in 38 years of playing poker, I was dealt a straight flush, but I was playing against my sons for non-currency backed matchsticks and it really hurts. (laughs) That is excruciating. (laughs) You're going to have to wait another 40 odd years for that, that hand to come around again. I know. If I make it
2: into my 80s, I'll get it at that point. So this episode of the podcast is going to be a little different in the sense that criminal justice reform is one of John Fazman's subjects that he covers at The Economist. So Charlotte and I are going to be grilling you, John, a little bit. So maybe I should leave it to you, John, to sketch out right at the top of the episode what you think we want to accomplish here. What are the questions we're trying to answer?
0: I think there are a couple of questions. One of them is the one you brought up in the intro, which is why is criminal justice reform so difficult? Specifically, why is federal police reform so hard? Why did the negotiations fall apart? And I've been speaking with both Republicans and Democrats who were in the room at the time, and they both said they are broad areas of agreement. And so I'm also interested in the question of local police reform. Since 2018, there's been a wave of progressive district attorneys elected across the country. I wanted to check in with one of them, Rachel Rollins, who I spoke to shortly after she took office to see how she's doing and more broadly assess the state of local criminal justice reform. So I wanted to look at these two areas where reform is progressing much more slowly than some activists would like, but it is progressing.
2: Yes. So just to clarify for anyone who's tuning into this subject more recently, after George Floyd's murder, there was this big movement around police reform. There was a proposal in Congress. It looked for a while as if this might be one subject where Republicans, Democrats in Congress could come together and get some agreement and then it all collapsed.
0: That's right. It all collapsed. And I wanted to know why it collapsed. And I wanted to know what the consequences of that collapse were. And I wanted to know what the federal, state and local response to that collapse was. What are the most controversial issues
2: when it comes to trying to get criminal justice reform done, when it comes to trying to
0: build a majority around reform? I think one big stumbling block is the question of qualifying immunity. And that refers to a judicial doctrine that shields officers of the state from being subject to civil lawsuits unless they violated a clearly established expectation. And what that means in practice is often quite appalling, right? There is a famous case of two police officers in Fresno who were accused during a raid, who were accused of pocketing tens of thousands of dollars in cash and rare coins, the owner of the establishment that they raided sued the police officers for theft. And that lawsuit was thrown out. The judge decided he didn't have to decide whether or not the police officers actually stole anything because there is no clearly established case law that says that police officers cannot steal rare coins in the process of executing a warrant. That's one extreme example. What Qualified Immunity also does, and this is particularly important to supporters of law enforcement, is they argue that it shields them from frivolous lawsuits. so They can actually do police work and don't have to spend all of their time in court defending themselves against frivolous lawsuits. Should we hear from Jonathan Thompson,
2: who's the executive director of the National Sheriff's Association, which is sometimes painted
4: by reformers as an obstacle to change? I certainly think there are elements of, of law enforcement that need reform. I don't, you know, there's a there's a myth in this country that the judicial system and the justice system in the America is is broken. I would I would argue that it is not broken. I would argue that it has kinks and serious kinks. You know, in this country, you are still innocent until proven guilty. That's not the case everywhere. Number one. Number two, I would argue that police have been traditionally the first call for any type of emergency, whether it's somebody in a mental health crisis or somebody being robbed. And that's a very, very important distinction for a lot of people to recognize is that more and more in this country, law enforcement is seen as the psychoanalyst, the social worker, the school resource counselor that's not a place that uh, bodes well for law enforcement. They take on that responsibility primarily because they are problem solvers and they're individuals that are committed to serving the public.
0: Let me ask more broadly. I've spoken to Republicans and Democrats about federal police reform. I think your organization was involved in crafting it as well, or you had input into it. From your view, why did it fail? What happened?
4: politics. I think that there were some that wanted to blame one another for it. I think we came a long way from some of the things that were being discussed in that, that legislation, that we had some serious problems the way they were writing it. Nevertheless, I'm really optimistic that we, we can resuscitate this entire project. I think we can, uh, we can look at the things that we agree on. And while they may not be those big things like eliminating uh, qualified immunity, which, by the way, we feel is vitally important for public servants across the spectrum. But what we can do is we can find those things that we're agreeable with. And no doubt there were, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so in
0: in the package that we were talking to the Senate about. And what about the other areas of agreement in that legislation? What about the data collection part?
4: You know, that's a great question. We, we think data is a vital part of law enforcement. The challenge we have, though, is that some want to use that data against an agency or a person uh, at some point down the road. Okay, we can understand that. The problem we have with data is that if you mandate an agency, a local agency, collect and store and make available data upon request, and if, if you don't, you're not going to get money from the federal government. That's tantamount to defunding.
0: And there, are, you acknowledge there are kinks in the system, but I think for a lot of people, especially a lot of African-Americans, feel the problem is more fundamental than that. Do you think there is an issue with systemic racism in law enforcement?
4: You know, I, I personally reject that, that premise. Um, that, that to me is, I think it's a bumper sticker statement that people want to believe that when you hear the word systemic racism, that means from beginning to end. The whole system was set up for racial reasons. And I reject that premise. I think it's naive. I think it's misdirected entirely. And I think when I hear you know academics talk about it and they make a very eloquent, balanced, calm uh, assertion, when they say that law enforcement wakes up every day, gets dressed, puts that star or that badge on their, their chest, and, and they are there to keep the races separate, that's an absurd and vulgar, frankly statement.
0: And I I don't I don't
4: believe that any reasonable person could look at the system through the the data and the statistics and believe that.
0: But I mean, that is an absurd notion that the law enforcement's purpose is racist. It is founded in racism. Its purpose is to keep races separate. We can reject that. But there is data showing diverse outcomes, adverse outcomes for African Americans that don't exist for white Americans. Higher arrest rates. Well, higher arrest rates for drug use, higher rates of, of police killings, things like that.
4: One death of any person whether they're white or black man or woman that is that's that's horrific we i think we all agree on that here's what i don't think we can all agree on and that's the, that's a sad reality is crime creates victims on multiple fronts but there's also an unknown non-victim and that is the person that's exercising that crime look in this country as i said earlier we believe that the rule of law does have to prevail if an officer has reasonable belief, that's called reasonable cause, to say, I, I think there's something going on behind that fence. I hear screaming. I hear, uh, uh, you know, it's sounds of an attack. I need to take action. And he does. And he finds out, wow, it was two guys that were just having a horse and a route, and it leads to an arrest. Or, that's one scenario, or he doesn't respond to that. And those two guys kill each other. The next day, the charge is, Police violate civil rights of, of man being killed by by walking away. Okay, so help me unpack that whole scenario. These are millisecond decisions, and these are decisions made by people that should be constantly trained. Their skills upgraded, which is you know a, a huge cost in this country because it is what it is. It's, it's expensive. So I I, I I reject that. Number two, let's I mean the number of crimes. Well, okay, tell me about the crimes. Who committed the crime? Sorry, which crime? Well, you said a, a disproportionate number of arrests for people of color. Who's who's committing the crime?
0: No, no, no. I said a disproportionate arrest when it comes to drug use. Okay. That was who's, just one example. Who's committing,
4: drug use is a crime in this country.
0: Who's committing the crime? That's the issue that we have to unpack. Where is the crime being committed? It is. My observation is just... Based on simple data, which is that drug use rates are roughly constant between the races, but African-Americans end up arrested for drug possession much more often than whites.
4: You know, I think that's, I, I think that if that's true, which I'm not sure I, 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 I can attest that it, it is, but what, I, what I'm trying to say is we need to be, we need to use the law fairly and equally. And if it's not, that is the problem.
3: That was such an interesting interview, John, because it pointed to the deep divergence in opinion of how people view police departments and how big a problem police departments' current activities would seem to be. And one point that he spoke about is qualified immunity. And this is an area where there's huge polarization more than any other Police issue of police reform, where eighty percent of Democrats support doing away with it, and only thirty-seven percent of Republicans. But there were other areas that where there does seem to be more commonality. And I'm interested to hear from you whether you think that someone like Thompson does support banning chokeholds. When you get down to the nitty gritty of policy, how far you think he would be willing to go? If, If you could talk a bit more about areas of commonality, both on the federal level and then, of course, on the local level, which is how most law enforcement agencies are governed, um, what would you bring out as possible areas of continued cooperation going forward? Or should we just be pessimistic full stop about the chances that anything will move forward?
0: I think there are areas of broad agreement between supporters of law enforcement like Jonathan Thompson and activists. I think that there's broad agreement that no-knock warrants should be used under extremely limited circumstances and really only when officer safety is genuinely at risk. I think there's probably a broad set of agreements around banning and restricting the use of of chokeholds. I think those can go. And I think, as you heard from Thompson, I think there's an awareness that police departments need to get better at collecting data. Now, where the rubber meets the road is how you get local law enforcement agencies, and most law enforcement agencies are local, not federal, how you get them to do it. Traditionally, the method has been to use the carrot stick method with federal funds, right? Do this and you get federal funds. Don't do it and you don't. But if law enforcement supporters are going to say, that doing that, that conditioning actions on the receipt of federal funds amounts to defunding, I think you're going to have real trouble. First of all, I don't think it's true, but the problem is it's a politically useful argument for one party, right? That you get to paint Democrats and advocates of reform as defunders. And so I think that's the real problem. It's not that these two sides disagree about everything. It's that politics gets involved and makes the process of reform much, much harder. John, do you actually need a new federal law in order to make progress in this area? I don't think you need it, but action on the federal level can do two things. Number one, it can set a sort of baseline, right? It can make the wanton use of chokeholds a violation of federal law. And second, that federal money is a really effective carrot to get departments to reform.
2: Okay, thank you both. We'll go back to when a piece of citizen journalism by an L.A. plumber shocked the world in a moment. First, the usual reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, then you're missing out. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. This week, we look at whether the Facebook whistleblowers revelations could be a turning point for big tech and delve into the angst of political scientists. The Lexington column is on democratic infighting over spending, which we covered in last week's episode of Checks and Balance. You could listen to that after you finish this episode. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. If you'd logged on to the Nate D. Saunders online auction site in the summer of 2020, you'd have found a decades-old, bulky, broken video camera for sale, for $225,000. The steep price tag was attributed to the accompanying letter of authenticity from its owner, George Holliday. This was the camera he'd used in the early hours of March 3rd, 1991, to film four white police officers nearly beating a black man to death
3: past midnight, uh, we got woken up by the noise of all the police sirens and the helicopter that just all came to a stop right outside our apartment window.
2: Holiday, a self-employed Los Angeles plumber, had bought the camera as a shared Valentine's gift for him and his wife Maria. With all the excitement for Child playing with a new toy, Holiday grabbed it to film whatever was causing a commotion outside his apartment. The video is grim. Almost drowned out by the hovering helicopter, Rodney King writhes on the ground as four cops beat him with batons, repeatedly and furiously, and several others stand by. Holliday had captured the violent end of a car chase between the LAPD and King on parole for robbery and driving wildly with alcohol in his blood. He was left with 11 skull fractures, kidney failure and permanent brain damage. Without George Holiday, it's likely no-one else would have known about the attack.
0: So we called Channel 5, they got curious about it, and in the conversation they found out that I had a tape of it.
2: After the LAPD showed no interest in it, he sold the tape to a TV station for $500. The grainy footage soon went viral. Four cops were arrested and stood trial for assault, but following their acquittal in 1992, LA erupted in riots for almost a week, causing more than 60 deaths and a billion dollars worth of damage. King himself pleaded for the violence to stop.
0: I just, I just want to say, you know, can we, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? Um. Can we stop making it, making it horrible for, for, the, for the older people and the, and, the, and, the, and the kids?
2: In 2012, King reflected on how Holliday's tape had shone a much-needed light on police violence against black men.
0: It has gotten to the point where people have almost become numb, numb to it. Thank God for that videotape, because what it did is kind of woke the minds back up of people, because had it not been for that beating on videotape,
1: the killings would be a lot worse than what they are now.
2: holiday died last month from COVID-19. He didn't regret making the tape, but Holiday became angry with how the media portrayed him and felt aggrieved that he barely made any money from it, as he says in this short video made with a filmmaker
0: friend. The main questions or comments that I get from people are, so, you must be a millionaire right now. So, no, I'm still a plumber, working hard
2: to make a living. So, in 2020, looking to buy a new place and short on cash, Holiday put his video camera up for sale online. It received no bids. John, there are many parallels between Rodney King and George Floyd. In the aftermath of Rodney King's beating by the LA police officers and the riots that followed, there were lots of articles written saying, why is the LA police department so slow to reform? Why is this taking such a long time? But viewed from this distance, actually, LA's police department is occasionally presented as a model of reform.
0: It just took a really long time, right? It took a long time. And it's not perfect. You know, no police department is perfect. They still have a fairly high kill rate. But they entered into a federal consent decree, and what that means is the Justice Department goes to the police department, in this case in Los Angeles, and says, look, we have found a pattern and practice of constitutional violations, and we could sue you, but instead, let's enter into a set of agreements about reform— we will have a federal monitor based in your department to determine how you carry out those reforms. And when those are executed well, they really do turn department around. The LAPD is not the institution that it was before. It's much more open. It's much more diverse. You know, at the time of Rodney King's beating, the department was 60% white. Today, it's about 30% um, reflecting the incredible diversity of the city. Now, law enforcement, often dislikes consent decrees. Um, They see it as federal oversight. Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions stopped using them. But they are an effective way to get a department to reform. And in the case of places like Los Angeles, Seattle, Newark, their police departments come out, I think, better for it. The cities come out safer. And they come out with a better relationship between the police and the communities they police.
3: It's interesting because LA provides a helpful long-term view of how police reform can happen. In Minneapolis, we're seeing this in real time, of course, because there was a lot of support for reforming the police department after the killing of George Floyd. In June of 2020, the city council had a pledge that they signed to dismantle the police department. But Minneapolis also shows just how torturous that process can be. So that initiative that the city council signed lost steam quickly, There's now an amendment uh, that's up for a vote in November to replace some police with social workers and with people for providing mental health services, to give more authority to the city council, to oversee police. And even among Democrats, there's huge division over whether this amendment is a good idea. And there's this open question about how best to provide accountability. You know, who do you hold to account when the police department isn't performing well, whether on crime or on issues of misconduct. And so Minneapolis, you see right now, is really in the throes of trying to figure out how to change, how to evolve. And LA gives a bit of a sense of just how long that fight, how long that process might take. Do you think John Fasman that we've moved beyond the defund the police controversy? You know, if you say that phrase to 10 different people, you're going to get a lot of different definitions of what it means. Do you think that in Minneapolis and elsewhere that you see reformers m- moving beyond the defund the police movement or is it still going to remain a divisive issue politically and substantively?
0: I mean, I think the slogan defund the police is both vapid and toxic, and I think it has some political utility for the right as a way to paint the left as anti-police, but I think substantively it's gone. What I found was really interesting, though, is that one of the things that defund the police advocates were pushing for last year was the devolution of mental health services away from police to people who are better trained to do that. You heard Jonathan Thompson, who is a strong law enforcement supporter, say basically exactly that, that police have to deal with mental health crises. They're not trained to do that. It would be better off in the hands of someone else. So I think once you push past that slogan of defund the police and get past it, you'll find, again, another set of agreements between reformers and law enforcement themselves about what police officers should and shouldn't do as a matter of course. Thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to hear from the Boston prosecutor who's
2: making some headway with police reform in her patch. John, one hope for criminal justice reformers has been through local democracy. The theory was that if you could persuade voters in cities to elect reformist district attorneys and prosecutors, then they might send fewer people to prison and the mass incarceration problem in America would become less of a problem. And also there was a hope that prosecutors might be able to do something about the problem that many reformers saw of police violence being out of control. Not all of those prosecutors have done well. In fact, lots of them seem to be quite unpopular. The reforms that they promised and that they got elected on haven't proved as popular in practice as they hoped they would. But Boston is a bit of an exception to that, right? One city where a reformist
0: DA was elected and she seems to be doing quite well. I think that's right, John. I think one of the things you saw after Donald Trump's election was a wave of reformist prosecutors running for office and winning. Now, this is unusual. Structurally, the prosecutor's office is very closely aligned with the police forces, as anyone who's ever watched an episode of Law & Order knows well. And so what you have, usually, is a prosecutor who measures his or her effectiveness by the number of people they put away and who would come into office promising to keep people safe by locking up bad guys. But what you had starting in around 2016 and really intensifying over the past five years is a different way of thinking. Reformists, DAs who came in and said, look, we don't need to lock everybody up for nonviolent crimes For certain crimes. It would be better for everyone, better for society, more cost effective, certainly better for people who are caught up in the criminal justice system to divert people away from prison and get them the help they need. And so that's essentially the platform on which Rachel Rollins was elected in 2018. One of her flagship policies is a list of low-level nonviolent crimes that her office aims not to
1: prosecute. So the offenses are 15 or so categories of crimes. All of them are nonviolent, non-serious misdemeanors. And if we look at the data, the data show that overwhelmingly these are more More a reflection of a mental health issue, substance use disorder, food or housing insecurity or homelessness. And although when we incarcerate you, you have housing, I would rather us look at the root cause of these problems and have sustained housing for you, right? Remember, it costs $55,000 a year to send somebody to the Suffolk County House of Correction and $15,000 a year to properly educate a student in our Boston public schools or seventeen dollars to $20,000 a year for a bed or treatment or services for mental health issues or substance use disorder. It is also fiscally sound to do what we're proposing. So that's number one. When I talk about the list of 15 or so, I promise you they're not violent crimes. Us arresting people for these 15 things are not keeping us more safe. This isn't about public safety. And and that's where we have to really educate people more, because everyone assumes, well, anyone the police arrests, it's going to make us safer. That's not true. What I want to do with these 15 types of crimes is have the community resolve them, right? Have the mayor's office so that I can focus my limited resources on the violent and serious crimes, the murders, the armed assault with intent to murder, the sexual assaults, the kidnappings, the part one crimes that really do impact safety in our communities. I'm not encouraging stealing. I'm saying it's not that they're stealing eight iPhones to make sure they can buy a Gucci purse. That person's going to jail, right? But if they are stealing necessity, if you are breaking into an empty storage facility because it's less, it's it's below six degrees in the middle of the winter in Boston, so you can live I'm not charging you with a breaking and entering into abandoned property. We might have to arraign you possibly to get you more treatment because that's when probation and the court can get involved. But if I can get you treatment of services before branding you with a criminal record, I will do that. I will try to do everything I can. And then what the naysayers say is, oh, so if someone breaks into my house and and abducts my child, they don't get charged? Well, no, crazy. That's an armed home invasion, right? Or that is a felony. So I just think we need to admit that the criminal legal system speeds to arraignment and then screeches to a slug-like pace where with these 15 types of crimes, we dismiss them anyways.
0: So it's not like every big city DA has the time to prosecute every shoplifter anyway.
1: Correct. So what I am doing is I'm trusting the public enough to say this out loud. And what I love to point out to the naysayers, and and I love naysayers, I actually do, because I think they keep us on our toes to make sure what we're doing is right. But DA Conley, DA Martin, administrations prior to me were null processing and dismissing many of these cases on the list of 15 or these types of cases. To the tune of 40 to 50%. Already, they just didn't trust you enough to say it out loud. I trust you enough to say, hey, guess what? We're not doing that. And I went from the 50 or so percent from the previous administration to maybe 60 or 70%. So when people are mad at me, I say back, okay, you can't be mad for the first 50. Because you think this guy's a hero, right? So are you mad at 51% with me? And do I only get 20% of anger, not 70? Because they got, I know that math doesn't work, but you get my point, right? Like I'm not a statistician. But my point is simply, I trust you enough to say, I have limited resources. I have limited time, just like everyone does. Not just DAs. Doctors, teachers, parents, right? What are we going to focus our attention on in a marriage? Am I going to yell at you about throwing socks on the ground or am I going to yell at you about a gambling problem, right? What What am I wasting my energy on? That's what I'm doing here. And what I have to do better, and this is another flaw that I don't think I did as good enough job and I'm trying much more now, is to instead of just ending with the list of 15 saying, and why I did it is so I can focus all of my attention on the violent serious crime that truly impacts communities.
0: Can I just go back to that number you tossed out, the null pros You said 60 or 70 percent. That's not 100 percent. Can you talk about that last 30 or 40 percent?
1: Thank you, yes. So when people say, this is the DA that refuses to... Pro-, no, and I will own that. I did not have an, an amazing comms team as a candidate, right? What I said was, we are flipping the presumption from incarceration to declination, diversion, or dismissal, and it is a rebuttable presumption. So let's think of three potential people. Rachel Rollins, Rebecca Splaine, and Elizabeth Splaine. We're three sisters, right? If Elizabeth has never been in trouble before, this is the first time she's touched the criminal legal system, possibly the arrest and being brought to court is enough to deter her to never do it again. We will likely null-pross that case right out the box. If Rebecca has done this two or three times, but it happened five years ago and in a different jurisdiction, we might speak to her lawyer and say: all right, listen we are most interested in what's been happening the last three years of their life. Maybe we um, null prost, but we have some questions first or see what they're going to do. We have a, We call the case a week later or so, get a little information. And then we come to Rachel, who has been trespassing and doing the same thing six, seven, eight times all within the last year. Rachel is not going to get null prost. Rachel, using discretion in the past, it hasn't worked. Now we're gonna arraign and we're gonna ask probation in the court for their help in this process, right? And likely Rachel still might not go to jail or she might, but we now have our partners in probation and in in, in a judge to say the trifecta, the DA, well, the table, let's say four, because the public defender or the, the, the criminal defense lawyer is, is equally as important in this process representing that individual. All four of us are going to try to put our minds together to find out what the best outcome is.
2: John, that was really interesting. And I think one of the things you can hear from Rachel Rawlins talking is how skilled she is at making liberal criminal justice reforms just sound both tough and just like common sense and with a dose of fiscal conservatism as well. Is that part of why she's been able to do what she's doing in Boston? Or is there some other reason why she's been relatively successful in Boston, whereas some of the other reformist DAs you know, really haven't been? And, and as we said already, some are facing recall.
0: I think it's a couple of things. I think number one, as you heard in that interview, is her skill at a politician. She's a really good talker. And I should say, as an aside, when I spoke with her in 2019, shortly after she took office, when she didn't have a federal nomination hanging over her. You know, she's, Biden has nominated her to be U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. She was much looser and much, much funnier. I mean, this sounds like a dismissive compliment, but she's one of the funniest politicians I've ever interviewed. And that speaks to her ability at telling a story. So she's a good politician. She's a good talker. And also, you know, Boston is rich and not terribly dangerous in many places to begin with. So she's starting with an advantage. So in, in essence, she's been dealt a very good hand and she's played it very skillfully. One thing I, I did hear from businesses in Boston is that there is a difference between not prosecuting shoplifters and announcing that you're going to not prosecute shoplifters. And there's a real concern that her saying that the bias of her office is against prosecuting shoplifters led people to believe that shoplifting was no longer a crime or that shoplifting was okay and led merchants to get really worried about the safety and security of their of their merchandise.
3: She obviously is very magnetic, as you say. I'm wondering, could you talk a bit more about any pushback that she's had? What are the weak points?
0: I think the pushback has come from police. And I spoke to one police officer off the record who said that there's just a a real anti-police climate in Boston. I don't think she has fostered that. I think Boston is a liberal city. And perhaps this police officer was used to a different relationship between community and police than the one that is being negotiated right now. But I think there's always some resistance from the police department and from police unions. I think that goes with the territory of trying to make reform. So it hasn't been perfect or smooth. But these are the sorts of things that anyone who wants to reform law enforcement is going to have to deal with. You're going to have to bring the police along. And I think that some other DAs, reformist DAs in other cities without you know naming names, have been a little too eager to lead with their chin and pick public fights. And I think Rollins, to her skill, has avoided doing that. And that's one thing that's made reform sort of smoother in Boston than maybe in other places.
3: Yeah, on on that point, I'm really interested to see whether um, the likely next mayor of New York, Eric Adams, is successful. Because to your point, he himself, as a former police officer, is not interested in being that antagonistic towards the police. And when he talks about reform and dealing with police unions, New York has some very powerful police unions. What he's basically said is he is going to promote people from within the police force, the police who patrol schools and libraries, who are more diverse than the police who are uh, beat cops on the street, so that the makeup the, of the police force changes over time. And that, in turn, will change the composition of police unions and change the environment in which you're trying to implement some of these police reforms. Th- that idea of changing the police from within is both interesting, seems likely to be effective, and seems likely to be slow.
2: John, just to go back to Rachel Rollins, do you think that what she's done in Boston can be replicated elsewhere? Or are the conditions, as you described them in Boston, just sort of sui generis and not repeatable? And what's the best we can hope for in criminal justice reform? It seems like it's a patchwork, right? Not some big federal change, uh, and not even a uniform will change locally. But some DAs in some cities, some jurisdictions, pushing things a bit further in the right
0: direction. I think that's what things look like in the near and medium term, that you will have a different set of assumptions around policing in Boston, New York, you know, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, than you may have in, in rural Texas or in Nebraska. The process of reform takes a very long time. It is grinding and incremental, and it's the sort of thing that has to be locally driven because police forces are, by and large, local and respond to local needs and voters.
3: Yes, and I think it's so important, though, to remember, as you do and have written about extensively in your coverage for us, of just how frustrating the pace of change is for people who see friends and family members at best treated unfairly by the police and at worst feel traumatized on a daily basis because they're subject to violence and profiling and go through their day fearful that they may be harmed not by criminals, but by the people who are supposed to be protecting them. So to state the obvious, there's the important reality that this is going to take time in order to do well, as we've heard about In Los Angeles, Minneapolis, etc. Even in a place like New York, which has embraced many tenets of reform, and that the progress still counts as progress, but it's far, far too slow for so many people for whom the current state of affairs is simply untenable.
2: Charlotte, having exposed John Fasman's ignorance of chaps earlier in the week on our WhatsApp chat, let's see if you can keep up that performance in the quiz. One of the first mentions of police reform in The Economist was in 1933. The paper supported changes in recruitment to London's police force as cars became more common. In the May 13th edition, we wrote that the motor bandit of these backwards islands has raised very considerably the intellectual standard required in the modern guardians of law. Question. Question. Cars, the 2006 Pixar film, was the final acting performance of which American screen legend, political activist, and purveyor of condiments? Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Before his death in 2008 at the age of 83, it was Paul Newman who voiced Doc Hudson. A 1951 Hudson Hornet. Newman took part in the March on Washington in 1963 and was the 19th name on President Nixon's infamous list of enemies, which the actor often said was his biggest life achievement.
3: I don't know whether to be thrilled with my performance on the occasional quiz in which I win or to be dismayed at the subject matter that elicits said victory. A 2006 Pixar film.
2: Sort of Pixar movies and celebrities.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, John's lack of knowledge of chaps suggests both that he has spent little time outdoors on a ranch, but also that he's unfamiliar with the mid-career work of Christina Aguilera. So I'm not really sure this is an area of pride. (laughs)
2: Let's see if you can keep it up. Newman was a lifelong Democrat, but even though President Carter appointed him to serve on a United Nations conference on nuclear disarmament... The actor didn't back his 1980 bid for re-election. Who was the independent candidate that Newman supported instead? John Anderson. Sounds good. It was John Anderson, a liberal Republican who won 6.6% of the vote in 1980. The best performance by a third candidate in a presidential election was Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, mentioned in last week's quiz, when he got 28% of the vote. So there we are. One point apiece. And with Charlotte's chaps knowledge, I think that that's the tiebreaker. So you just <laughs> shade this week's quiz, Charlotte. Hooray. Um, we'll have to find some more leather goods Fasmin isn't familiar with for next week.
0: I will say this. My wife rode horses for a very long time, and she is going to discover that I don't know what chaps are. And it is going to be a weekend of mockery for me. <laughs> <laughs> so what's new? What is new? Exactly.
2: Okay, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. The Economist Asks podcast this week features an in-depth interview with General Stanley McChrystal. Check that out if you haven't already. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.